Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. And amen. Be seated if you would. Hey, welcome to Connect Church. So grateful uh, that you are here. And if you're visiting with us today, man, we are honored by your presence. Thank you for coming as we gather together, as we do every Sunday, to make much of Jesus together. Hey, can we thank our team for leading out today? Man, what a... I love preaching the truth of God's Word, but I really like singing it too. And uh, today, and they did a wonderful job of just leading us out. And today as well, uh, we start a brand new series of messages entitled, Ask Me a Question. The heart behind this series is to allow you guys to speak into and ask questions uh, that we come together and we begin to answer uh, both biblically and apologetically. I mean, how is it that we answer uh, some of the toughest questions in the life of our body, and so uh, the body of Christ? And so I'm grateful that you are along for the ride. I want to say this as we begin to address and approach our first question. Uh, you heard this saying before. Uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question. That's a lie. Okay, I just want you to know there are stupid questions said by, now I'm not going to go there. Hey, but there are stupid questions, but the questions you guys asked, man, were on point. Just absolutely on point. To be honest with you, to answer all of them, what would take me the entirety of the rest of this year and then more. And so what we've done is we've kind of picked the top questions or arenas or areas of question, packaged them together, and, and we're just going to go to God's Word together to answer those questions. One of my favorite questions came uh, from a life group, I believe, and that was, do you have anything else but a black shirt, right? And uh, uh, yes, but this is what I wear. This is what, if you were to go in my closet, there's 12 black shirts that look exactly like this because I'm weird, and, uh, and I love them. But maybe, just maybe, there were some, some bigger questions than that. And we begin to answer those today. So here's the question that we're going to tackle together. And, and this really represents, man, a great multitude of your questions that came in. But, but one person asked this really well. And so I'm going to read their question to you, and really all of our later messages are going to build off of this. Here's the question. How should a Christ follower interact with an ungodly culture in an impactful way which promotes life change when this generation is filled with lifestyle choices and belief systems in stark conflict with the Word of God? This one question really encapsulates, really brings in and frames up so many questions that we're asking. Today will serve as a catapult uh, to the rest of our messages in this series, Ask Me a Question. So here's where I'll begin to answer this question. And here's the first thing we must understand and what it is to make a, a lasting, to make a, a meaningful and a life-changing impact on a culture, on a community that don't necessarily believe the Word of God or follow the Word of God. You ready? Here's what we got to do first. Number one, we must stand for truth unapologetically. That is where we have to begin. That is where we must begin today as believers, to stand for truth. But, but I want you to hear me, and here's kind of the caveat and the warning. Before we can stand for truth, guys, we got to know the truth. Before you can stand on truth, we've got to know the truth upon which we stand. And here's what we know. 
As the Bible teaches that God is the God of truth according to Isaiah 65, 1 and verse 6. We know this out of Titus chapter 1, verse 2. It reminds us this, that the God we serve does not lie. We know in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul reminds the believer to buckle the belt of truth as we put on the very full armor of God. In 1 Timothy 4, 3, Believers are challenged not only to know the truth, but in 2 Timothy 2.15, believers are commanded to handle the truth correctly. In 2 Timothy chapter 2.18, we are to avoid that which isn't truth. Followers of Christ are to live out the truth as it's stated in John 3.21 and to abide in truth according to John chapter 8.31 and 32. You see, truth serves as the foundation for what we believe. And why we believe it. But here's the problem in the church today. We don't know the what and the why behind our beliefs. And so it makes it impossible for us to really stand for truth. Because we don't don't know the truth. You say, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good, Anthony. Let me tell you what y'all do. Y'all to go pick up my four kids from school. You ought to sit with a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and a five-year-old little girl and a three-year-old little boy in the back of your van and have a 30-minute ride from school. And you ought to hear the questions. My seven-year-old literally did this to me the other day. She goes, hey, Dad, I know that God and I know Jesus are one. They're part of the Trinity together. So when Jesus died on the cross and our, our sin came upon him and the Father in heaven forsake his son and turned his back on his son, how is it that God is one and yet God can turn his back on God? You know what I said? Ask your mom. Ask your mother. That's actually the most common answer to their questions and and to know the truth in which we believe. So here's what I want to do. What would really help me this morning is if I had an officer, an administrator at a local school, and and a cool kind of nurse, maybe even like a a flight nurse, like one of those cool nurses that just fly in, like Lifestar for UT Medical Center, just to come on up here. how ran- what? How amazing. How random this happened today. I mean, just like that. Y'all are dressed in everything. Um, here's what I want to do. I, I want to begin today's discussion. And by the way, for the sound booth, I'm, I'm going with mic number one again, uh, Pastor Zach's, and I'm turning it on. Um, here's what I want to do today. Man, we have a great officer, a great administrator, an assistant principal at Sevier County High School. And then we have a flight nurse who actually, I'm not sure how your job works, but in my mind you fly helicopters and jump from them to save people. And so, and so here's a couple things I want to do. I just want to ask them about their, their, their work and, and how hard they've studied and how hard they've trained. And so, Walt. Walt is a, I mean, listen, I love this man. He is a wonderful and much beloved police officer. I'm, I'm going to hand you the mic. And and I want to say this as we start. How grateful of a church we are for the brave men and women who serve as police officers and first responders. No matter what you hear, these are heroes that live and work among us. And and without them, man, I, 
no way we'd be the greatest country on the planet. So thank you for what you do. Now, now Walt, so I want you to help us to understand, to be a great officer like you are, and we know you're great, you told me that, and so, and so we're going to talk through that a little bit, but, but share with me, what does it look like, your education, I know there's some training that goes into it, can you kind of just share with us what it takes to be a great officer? Yeah, but hundreds of hours. Yeah. Now, let's just go millions. I love it, yes. No, but you know what? But I mean, honestly, just a time. And let me ask you this question, too. Um, at some point along the way, college, academy, and training, do you have to read a book at all? <laughs> yeah, that's great. So in volume and length, that is great. Well, hey, thank you so much. I'm going to take this. I'm going to pass it on. There you go. And uh, so we have Brother Kevin here. Uh, he is an assistant principal at Sevier County High School. We go way back when we won the state championship in 2020, or 2020, 20, 2000, to 1999. This is what happens when you get old. i got gray hair. Anyway, um, he was one of my football coaches. And uh, I, love, I love Brother Kevin, but I just kind of help us to understand, to be a great administrator in our public schools, man, what kind of education does that look like? What kind of training along those lines? <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll go to po- graduate, postgraduate. I'll come That's right. Yeah, and every year you guys go through multiple trainings to better your profession. And so, uh, again, we're looking at thousands of hours just represented in, in two of our folks. And I, and I do want to stop and say this, too. When so many around our nation closed down their schools, administrators and teachers like Kevin kept our schools as open as they possibly could, and they serve on the front lines with our kids. Man, again... Heroes who kind of walk and work and live among us, and so we're so grateful. Now, if you'll pass to Miss Haley over here, uh, just so be you wore your uniform today. Unbelievable. Um, and, and so Haley is a life flight, a flight nurse, I'm trying to get that right, for the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Again, one of the coolest jobs on the planet, okay? And she flies around and saves you when you're broken to pieces, okay? And that's right, yeah. Not the ride you're really looking for. And, uh, and Haley, I, I want you to share about that, but also I want you to know her husband was supposed to be with her today, um, Steve, but he is he's sick and he's at home. But he's also a, he's a pilot, um, flew for American Airlines and now for FedEx as a, as a cargo pilot. And so um, she's pregnant, so that means their child, they're going to Mars, right? So just so you know, that's the next step uh, for their profession and their, and their family. But I want you just to share with me just a little bit about what it takes to be a flight nurse. That's right.
So you probably read a book. Yeah, one-ish. You probably read a book. Yeah, just all of it. And, uh, and so let me talk about Steve. That joy, we got to see him really come to Christ. We got to baptize him. I got to marry you and him. And, uh, man, I love Steve. So American Airlines, and now he flies cargo. Um, what kind of training does it take to be a pilot in kind of that field and do what he does? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it, straight YouTube. Yeah, what else does it take? Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Yeah. <laughs> At least we don't think so. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Awesome. And I want to say this, too. And, and listen, I love, I think everybody in here is essential to what we do. But for our nurses, how many COVID patients that she had to fly to, to better hospitals to help them. I mean, they were on the front lines. Our men and women who serve in nursing and medical field. And we're just so grateful for them. And so thank you. Haley, I'll take that, guys. Thank you all so much. One more round of applause for our, our teams here. So we have a great officer, we have a great administrator, and we have a great flight nurse. And you know, one of the things that, uh, that really distinguished them out is, is really how hard they work, the fact that they studied even harder, and they trained the hardest to stand out in their field, to be great at what they do. You know, I got to thinking in my conversations before today with them, you know what didn't happen? They didn't get great in their field. They didn't get to do what they get to do because they just spent one hour a week in a class. They had to work hard, study harder. They had to train the hardest. There had to be self-motivation involved in all of their studies. The, the truth is, there had to be a passion for them to learn. There had to be some self-feeding outside of just class hours for them to stand out in their field. And that's their vocation. A part of their life, an important part. But here's the question I have as believers. How much more should it weigh on us to work hard and to study harder and, and to train the hardest and not as what just is a part of our life, but which is our very life, which is our eternity. And that's our faith. How much is it incumbent upon us to stand out as light in a world against the backdrop of darkness? You know, to be honest, for you and I to be great at what God has called us to, that, that race, that Hebrews 12 one, this race that he's marked out for us, it's going to take more than one hour a week in a class, in a church, in a service. Hey, can I, can I share something with you? If the only Bible you're getting is from me on Sunday mornings, man, I love you, but you are starving to death. I'm so glad nobody yelled out amen. JP, I thought that would be right there. Um, somebody was going to yell out amen there. But hey, listen, the truth is, is you, are, you are starving 
to death. Paul reminds us, I love this in 2 Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, I want you to note this. As we begin to study and to endeavor what it is to know the very truth of God, therefore you and I can stand for truth. We're reminded this about Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. I love that phrasing, God-breathed. In the Greek language, it means forcefully born along. Imagine a giant shipping vessel. And it has its sails that are just laying flat, no wind. And all of a sudden, wind begins to fill those sails, and it begins to push that massive vessel across the water towards a direction. Well, that is the very picture painted by the word God breathed. It means this, that it was not only God breathed, it's God brought and it's God blessed. And it's useful for what? For teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For every good work. But the problem is here is that this is where a lot of us are struggling that we're not, we've not been equipped, you ready, by, by our own motivation, by our own passions, by our own self-feeding. We, we've not been really equipped enough to the very good work that God has called us to do. I, I love what Adrian Rogers says here. When the child of God loves the Word of God and sees the Son of God, he's changed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God because what? He has found the truth of God. Adrian Rogers speaking of the very Bible itself. Do you really know what you believe and why you believe it? The very truth upon which we are to stand as we engage a culture and a community that many don't believe in God or the Bible. And yet, we stand for Christ to be his light, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Our we standing for truth that we know. Uh, you guys probably weren't alive back in 1992, uh, but there was a movie that came out called a, a Few Good Men. And there's an iconic line and an iconic scene in there where uh, Brother Nicholson goes out there, and what does he say? Do y'all remember what Jack says in that line? What, you ready? You can't, you can't handle the truth. Man, in movie history, iconic line. But do you know that if you were to find a copy of the original script, that was not the line at all. Oh, Jack Nixon, he, was, he had some improv. In fact, the original script read this way. You have always had the truth. But you got a movie star, he improvises and makes movie history. Let me share with you. As a believer, I kind of like the original script. Because I, I want you to hear me. Believer, you've always had the truth. And hear me. In Christ, you can and we must handle the truth of God and his, and his word. And as we do, we must stand for truth unapologetically, and with authority. I love this from Matt Chandler, a wonderful pastor. He says this, if you're not confident in the authority of scriptures, you will be a slave to whatever sounds right. If you're not confident in what you believe, the authority of God's word as a source of truth, guys, we become slaves to whatever sounds right. Don't believe me? 
Why are we losing so many of our young people on college campuses? Because they walk into big rooms with arrogant professors who denounce God, and you know what? They sound like the smartest people in the room. And then we become a slave if we're not careful. If we don't know the truth for which we stand, if we're not careful, we become enslaved not only to what seems and sounds right, but we become enslaved to the smartest person that we perceive in the room. And here we have this incredible source of truth in the very Word of God. And did you know that when you're holding the Word of God, that you hold a collection of 66 different books written over a period of about 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors from 14 countries spanning some three continents? That though the authors differ in their background and their culture and their time in history, these books come together and give to us the God-breathed, inspired, infallible, incredible word and story of God. Hey, talk about a source of truth. Most of us have one right now in our pockets through an app. And many of us have them sitting on shelves at our home. You see, we live in a culture where so-called truth is sourced from other places other than God and His Word. Many people try to source truth from social and cultural norms, from religious dogma, from human experiences and, and our feelings. Can I just give you a warning, believer? Don't let... What you see, or what you hear, or what you experience. Don't let them let you forget what God has said. Don't let what you've seen, or what you hear, or what you experience make you forget what God has said. I love this, you ready? Truth is truth, even if no one believes it, and a lie is a lie, even if everyone believes it. You know, we find ourselves at a place when we talk about moral and absolute truth, that truth is not something you and I can invent. Rather, truth is something we merely discover. As God has revealed it, through creation, through his son, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And through his, through his word. You might come to the question then, Anthony, back to the question that was asked. But how is it that we engage with people who don't believe in God, or they don't believe in the Bible as a source for truth? And how do we engage people like that? You ready? You make the Bible believable by your passion for it, your obedience to it, and your dedication to living it out in your heart and your life. Hey, yes, the Word of God can defend itself, but as believers, we are called to let the Word of God define our very lives. As we continue to, as 2 John 1-4 reminds us, actually, I think it's 3 John 1-4, as we continue to walk in the truth, I love this from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Isn't that good? But as a believer, here's the question. How do you and I let the lion loose? 
two ways. With our lips and with our lives. We stand for, we stand on the truth of God. But hear me, we must know the truth of God through His Word. And there's many believers who would say, you know, the truth is is that the Bible's just too hard to read. Man, I just can't make sense out of that. In a, in a world, in a generation where information and knowledge is just one click away, man, I still can't make sense of that book. Let me read you what uh, Soren would write about this. Watch this. The Bible is very easy to understand, he writes. But we Christians, now, now get ready to get your toes stepped on. We are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Can I tell you what? He didn't have a bowl of Lucky Charms that morning, right? That's a Raisin brand comment. Just so you know, he was, he was angry that day. But you know what? He hit the nail on the head. We're just a, a bunch of scheming swindlers because the minute we know it, we're obliged to it. And you know what that means? That you and I in Christ, we are obligated to the truth of God and to stand for such truth, even amidst the world that bows down. Take your Bibles. Let's turn to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you go there, it's going to be here that we gain some insight on how to impact culture in a meaningful and a life-changing way. It is here that Peter writes to a network of churches in, in Asia Minor. Churches who are both, watch this, you ready? They're harassed and they're persecuted because they love and follow after Jesus. Hey, nobody harasses and persecutes somebody who just talks about Jesus. They only do that for those who are living out Jesus. And that's exactly what we find in these churches. And so what Peter's doing is he's writing not only to encourage them, but to challenge them to continue to impact their culture in a meaningful, in a life-changing type way. And we see this played out. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is where we camp out for the rest of the sermon. Watch what he writes. But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And he goes on and says, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Set apart Christ as Lord. Now, if you were to read this in the original language, the language of the New Testament, the Greek language, you would realize that as Peter writes this passage, he's writing it with urgency. He's saying, listen, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts now. You don't have a minute to wait. You can't get through the Super Bowl party tonight and then decide to do it. Set apart Christ as Lord now. And do so set in part as Lord in your hearts. In 1977, a 15-year-old boy by the name of Kevin and his buddy decided to create their own nation, their own kingdom. They called it the Republic of Malaysia. They began to draw a map. They created paper money, and they even designed a flag that would fly in their new kingdom. Well, the Chicago Tribune, a reporter by the name of Colleen Mastoni, had heard of this, and she went down to tour this 1.3-acre kingdom in the Nevada desert. Kevin assured her, hey, listen, we still pay our taxes. We call that foreign aid, right? 
And I just want to let you know we're doing this just for the enjoyment of having our own kingdom. You know, the truth is, as many of us, we're not going to venture out to create our own nation, our own kingdom. But we all do have a kingdom of the heart where we decide who will rule. We have a kingdom of the heart, and you and I decide each and every day, man, who is going to sit on that throne? Who is going to be Lord and ruler of the kingdom of our hearts? Now, I might talk a little bit about the heart, and you might, this is what might pop up in your mind, the imagery there. You might be thinking I'm speaking of an organ that's pumping blood in your chest to keep you alive. That's not how the New Testament simply saw heart. You might say, well, heart, that's probably the seat or the center of emotion. And it just deals with emotions in a person's life. That's not how the New Testament authors saw it. When Peter speaks of the heart in the Greek language, you know what? He uses the word cardia. That's where we get a lot of our terminology around the heart today. And he used this word in 1 Peter chapter 3 because here's how New Testament authors and people saw the heart. Not as just some organ, not as just some emotional experience, but a heart in the New Testament was seen as the seat or the center of a person's intellect and their will. Their intellect and the volitional part of their life, the will part of their life, behind what they do and why they do it. In fact, here's what we find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus would say this about the heart. Watch this language. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Not just an organ. Not just emotional stuff. Come evil thoughts. Now watch the will. Evil thoughts of murder and adultery and sexual immorality. Theft, false testimony, and slander. You see... Our hearts are the very seat and the intellect that Peter is writing about. The very center of our lives. And yes, even a center of emotions. And what he's saying this, whether it's your intellect or your will or the very emotions you have, set apart Christ as Lord. Let him rule. Let him be Lord over the kingdom of your heart. Hey, can I ask you a question? Who's sitting right here in your life today? Hey, you know what? Let me ask you a better question because we're all here on Sunday. A little bit easier to follow Jesus in the service. Hey, who has sat here this past week in the kingdom of your heart? Have you sat here most of this week saying, you know what, God, I got this. This is my kingdom, my heart. Has somebody else sat here for you? on the seat and center of your life. How much has Jesus really sat here? How much have you really set apart Christ as Lord in your heart? You see, as we stand for truth, we cannot do so divorced of the fact that we must set up Christ as Lord in the kingdom of our heart. We can't do it. And I love that phrasing in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ is Lord. Chuck Colson would write that if you were to stand up in the day of 1 Peter in Asia Minor and you were to declare to a crowd of people, Jesus is God, no big deal. They believed in many gods. You could worship a whole pantheon of gods. That was nothing outside the norm. 
But if you were to stand up and you were someone Peter's writing to in Asia Minor and you were to say, Jesus is Lord, that's a whole different ball game. You would do so risking your very life to do it. Why? Because though there were many gods, there was only one Lord in the Roman Empire and his name was Caesar, not Christ. Thus the persecution that we see believers undergoing. Because although they were to obey Roman law, they could not make Caesar Lord because there is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. He looks nothing like Caesar. Jesus as Lord in your heart. That means no matter the pressure, no matter the persecution, no matter the promises of violence, Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And you know what that means for those believers? Stand on truth and stand for the truth of God. But I want you to hear me. Not only do we stand for truth, we must labor in love. As we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, you're always to be ready to give a defense to anyone. They believe like you're not. They hate your love you. They're persecuting you or not, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the part where we begin to labor in love. I love the word defense here. Uh, in the Greek language, it's apology. It's where we get our, our word apologetics from, a defense of our faith. And literally, that means to give an offense, a defense. Now, what that paints the picture of in your mind is of a Greek courtroom where you have a lawyer who is actually passionately either defending a person or defending the law. That's the picture it paints in your mind. Always be ready to give a defense, to articulate, to talk out intelligibly what it is that you believe and why you believe, the very hope that is in you. And why do we do that? Why do we stand for truth apologetically? and yet labor to speak the truth in love. You ready? Because the reason we speak truth in love is because we have a desire, a longing. We, we are prayerful that those who hear the truth will be set free, will be saved, will be sanctified, will be satisfied in Jesus' truth himself. What's at stake? Well, 2 Thessalonians teaches us this in chapter 2, verse 10. About the wicked, they will perish because, watch this, they have refused the love, to love the truth and so be saved. Hear me, we don't weaponize truth. We use truth to work to win souls for Jesus. I love this in Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love. Watch this. We will grow to become in every respect a mature body of him who is the head that is the Christ. So let me, if this is a picture of maturity, let me paint a picture of immaturity to you real quick. It's the person who takes truth and who weaponizes it to injure or to merely win an argument. Man, I know the truth and I'm going to hurt you with it. I'm going to weaponize it just to win an argument to puff up my own ego. Can I tell you where you see that the most? Social media. It is a cesspool of weaponizing truth, even from believers, trying to inflict injury and harm. 
doing nothing more than puffing up false narratives, false heroics, false courage. And the aim, if we're not careful, to sound good, to win an argument, and to puff up our self-image. It's ugly out there, even from believers at times. But we see in Ephesians chapter 4, there's maturity on the other hand who takes this truth of God and wields it, not weaponizes it, and wields it in hopes to win souls to Jesus. Hey, can I remind you something? Uh, Jesus wasn't a jerk. You don't have to be either. We must stand on truth unapologetically but we also must speak truth in love. Can I tell you what's easy Sunday mornings? Now, not that I don't put a lot of hard work into a message, and, and my, my vocation sometimes is challenging, but I want you to hear me. It is far easier to stand and preach against culture than it is to get outside of these walls and to reach culture with the gospel. It's far easier to, to preach against sinners than it is to love Jesus enough to step outside of these walls and to reach sinners with the gospel. We stand for truth unapologetically, but we also speak the truth in love in order that we might win souls. For Jesus, we, we do not compromise our conviction. We do not operate in, in cowardice, but we always labor in love with what? Great compassion for those who are lost. John Piper would write it really well. He says this, being exiles does not mean being cynical. A cynical Christian, God help us. It does not mean being indifferent or uninvolved. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves in seasons, and where it can't, it absolutely weeps. And the light of the world does not withdraw, saying, good riddance to godless darkness. It does what? It labors to illuminate. As we stand for truth, we must speak truth in love, laboring in love, in order to what? To win souls for Jesus. So you know what we do? We sit at Matthew's table with sinners. We meander near pools of water where broken people with bad theology lay desperate and hopeless. We talk to tax collectors in the middle of the day at their booth. We even engage arrogant religious people. We, we play in the mud with those who are blind and, and we help see them rid of demons and addictions. We love and embrace the leper. We have conversation at wells with people no one else will talk to or no one else wants to be seen with. We draw in the sand and we throw down stones with people who were caught in sin and have a bad reputation. We love and we forgive our enemies. We take up our cross even for people who laugh at us. We shed tears and blood if need be in order that thirsty people may come to Jesus and drink. That hungry people can feast on him. That tired people can rest in Jesus. That hurting people can be healed in him. That broken people may be whole in him even if it means brushing somebody's hair my sister-in-law 
teaches third grade at her school here in Sevier County. A number of years ago, she came home and she told my, uh, my brother, her husband, about a young girl in her class that just, some strange things going on. And my brother said, well, what's happening? What's she doing? She goes, I know it sounds silly, but every day she comes to class and she acts like a kitten. I mean, she'll meow. She'll try to purr. She'll hop up on things. And, and on top of that, she'll actually kind of lick her hands and, and try to, to fix her hair, which was just a mess. And what we would consider is just something silly a little kid does. In reality, it was something very sad that exposed a great deal of hurt in her life. Among many things, she was severely neglected. She wasn't loved. She wasn't valued. And so she would try to garner attention every time she came to school. Her clothes were always dirty. She wore the same thing. You could tell that nobody cared enough to bathe her. She smelled. and Her hair was always dirty and matted. and You could tell never saw a brush. Well, Lauren comes home and she tells my brother, hey, listen, I'm going to take our daughter's brush and I want to bring it to school. Now, evidently, it's a detangling brush and my brother's a cheapskate. And he's like, well, that's a $30 brush. Like, you, you're going to never see that thing again, right? And he's like, but you know what, go ahead. Bring it to school. And so every day, Lauren would grab this young lady and bring her into her room before school started. And she would sit her down in front of her. And she'd talk to her and she'd take the brush. And she'd comb her hair. Hair that did not smell good. Hair that was dirty. Hair that was tangled. All the pieces. And with every merciful and loving stroke, she worked out the knots and all the tangles. For that little girl, every time Lauren brushed her hair, a little girl was reminded that she was loved, she was valued, and she was important to somebody. That she had meaning and purpose. We live in a world with broken people. I don't know why sin surprises us anymore. People who don't know the truth, don't believe the truth, or want nothing to do with the truth. We can get angry. We can preach and rail against culture all day long. Or, we can set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We could give a defense and a reason for the hope that we have. You ready? And we can brush hair if that's what it takes. To love and to serve people. To get our, our hands dirty with what God has called us to do. And if we can, if we can stand for truth and, and we can labor in love and we can, we can speak truth in love and and we'll work to win souls by something as simple as brushing hair. 
we can have a meaningful and life-changing impact on a community, on a culture, on a planet in desperate need of Jesus. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.